Welcome into the Sunday Lead here this morning on ESPN 730. David Jackson with you along with Harrison Battle as we look across the street at Bank of America Stadium. Sun rising on a Panthers game day. Rivalry football at Bank of America Stadium today as the undefeated Carolina Panthers and NFC South Division champs already before they play their chief competition in the division. Already the champs. The Panthers taking on the Atlanta Falcons. We'll talk plenty about that game today as well as a full slate of college and professional sports. You've got college basketball season uh, somewhat heating up, starting to get into some more compelling December matchups. Certainly the third-ranked North Carolina Tar Heels on the road yesterday played one of the more compelling games in the college basketball season thus far. We had college football yesterday as well. The Heisman Trophy was handed out. Not a big shock as to who won the award, but maybe a little bit more shocking is how the voting went down in the award for the 80th Heisman Trophy. So we'll get into that this morning. We'll also talk Army-Navy, one of the, uh, in, in what is a tradition-rich sport, college football, nobody can argue that, one of the best traditional matchups in the most tradition-rich sport, perhaps in the college spectrum. That went down yesterday, and it was a lot closer game than a lot of people thought so we'll uh, get into that topic as well as uh, along with uh, plenty of NFL and some other storylines uh, in there as well but uh, Harrison I know a lot of eyes on Bank of America Stadium today this matchup back I'd say about a month ago felt like it had a little bit more weight to it you, you thought maybe the Falcons would right themselves after uh, kind of spiraling a bit I, I don't think anybody at that point in time again go back four or five weeks thought that the Falcons would be in the tailspin they are, much less did the national media give the Carolina Panthers much credit for still chasing an undefeated season. But that's where we find ourselves today, and uh, certainly a compelling matchup in NFC South play. I think the Falcons are the reason that you've seen so many people just waiting for the other shoe to drop with the Panthers, because this is a team that early in the season, all the things were going right for them. Their offensive line that we didn't expect to be good coming into the season looks like the best offensive line in football Devontae Freeman comes out of nowhere relatively and is having an incredible season leading the NFL in rushing. Matt Ryan looks strong early. That's something that we probably expected, and the defense looks good. So all of these things early in the season when they get off to that 5-0 and start, new coach, all right, you've changed the culture, you've done all these things, and you can make all these points about how good this team's going to be. And then what the Panthers haven't done, what the Falcons have done, is just completely fallen off since then. They've lost a lot of games, and basically everything that was going right for them early on now isn't going so right. The offensive line looks more like an offensive line we expected coming into the season. Devontae Freeman passed two games about under 60 yards a game, and Matt Ryan can get the ball to Julio Jones consistently, but he's really struggling with the fact that Roddy White's getting older and it can't be that number two option anymore. And then he doesn't have Tony Gonzalez from two years to go two years ago to be able to bail him out. So the Falcons don't really have those weapons, and Matt Ryan isn't playing at a level right now where they can overcome that. You know, one of the uh, stories that we'll talk about here this morning, and, and kind of the national debated point, if you will, Matt Ryan, does he have it or not? Is this a blip on his career radar screen, or is he starting to regress a bit as a quarterback? And, and depending on which way you fall on the side of the fence of, of your allegiances to teams, I think you can make a passionate argument against Matt Ryan falling off uh, and that fall off being more long-term, or does he 
simply have the weapons to work with to make himself an elite quarterback this year. Other side of this coin, too, that's an interesting point to be debated, and we'll get into this uh, during headlines as we start to talk more in depth about this game, is this notion of do the Panthers have anything to play for? They're 12-0 and right now. They've already locked up the division. They will likely lock up a bye, uh, if not this week, next week. Uh, certainly, it's, it's right around the corner for the Panthers to solidify a, a good spot in the playoffs. They are playing for the home field advantage throughout the NFC uh, playoff side of things. And uh, certainly they'll be scoreboard watching, not this week because they've already played, but scoreboard watching Arizona the rest of the way for that. But this notion that an undefeated team doesn't have anything to play for, uh, not to steal the whole point that I'm going to make, but I, I think it's absolutely ludicrous. I, I don't care what level of, if you're playing T-ball and your team is 5-0, and if you don't step out on that field to become 6-0 and and put everything into becoming 6-0, and you're doing it for the wrong reasons. How in the world can anybody make a case to say, well, you know, they're, they're really not concerned about that? I guarantee you that they might not outwardly say that, but everybody in that locker room is walking in there today to become 13-0. and And that's where the conversation starts and stops. Well, yeah, exactly. And you can make the same point before the Warriors lose last night. I mean, it, obviously, the same with the Panthers until you get in the postseason, until you get into that latter half of the postseason where you have a chance to championship nothing really matters it doesn't matter if you don't come away with that ultimate prize but at the same time the Panthers aren't sitting here week to week going okay well if we lose this game I guess this isn't so bad and I've been so impressed with the way that this team's handled this entire situation because this is a lot of guys that for the most part haven't been in this situation before a coaching staff that has not been in the situation where they're winning week after week. They're having to deal with more and more media coming to Charlotte. At the beginning of the season when we're doing this show, I mean, yeah, you saw a lot of Panthers fans out there, but now the entire city has gotten on top of this team. The entire Carolina is something that Jerry Richardson has always wanted with this franchise, and everybody nationally is starting, at least fans, are starting to pull for the Panthers, and you're seeing this team just become bigger than what we thought they could ever be. You have to respect the streak. To borrow a, a little uh, Bull Durham, a little Crash Davis for you here on this Sunday morning, always, you, because always they get don't, that reference in. because they don't happen very often, and and there are every player in that Carolina Panthers locker room could go the rest of their career and never be 12 and 0 again. So it, it only makes sense that you put everything into riding the streak as long as possible. Now, the, think about it from Golden State's perspective. They lost last night. We'll talk about that in a few minutes too. Think about the the number of pairs of socks that are being washed. Today. Because it's superstition. That's what it's all about. That, that's what that's yeah. what makes sport sport because of, of goofy things like that. I was on teams that that went through winning streaks and, and nobody shaved. And then you lose, you shave. You know, you lose, you wash your socks. There there are probably some smelly socks across the street right now, and and hopefully they stay that way. But but I just I've seen so many things this last week about, you know, and, and I get the bigger picture. The bigger picture is today, should the Panthers drop this game, does it really mean anything in the grand scheme of the context of the season? Not really. I mean, they, they've already got the division sewn up. They're, they're going to likely get one of these buys. I mean, everything is still there for them. But it's just a, a, an extra cherry on top of what has been a fantastic season. And I can't think for a second that nobody in that locker room cares about that. And and to, to make points to the contrary, I think, is just short-sighted and is, is trying to fuel the speculative talk. I mean, everybody has to be pointed in that direction. It also helps you're playing the, these division games down the stretch against teams that either have owned you in the past and the Saints, and we saw how close of a matchup that is last week when it wasn't supposed to be a close matchup, at least on paper. 
and obviously the Panthers uh, have playing the Falcons in the past and the, and the matchups that these two teams have had, the things that the Falcons have taken away from this Panthers franchise in the past. So, yeah, a lot of motivation going down the stretch. You're playing these division teams, and you just want to go out and kill your division. I mean, that's point-blank end of story. And then you want to continue to prove that going into the playoffs, we're still the best team in football. Two home games left for the Panthers today against the Falcons, right after the first of the year against the Bucks, another divisional opponent like Harrison's talking about. So plenty to uh, uh, kind of wrap things up with here on the home slate over the next few weeks. Of course, games against the Giants and then the Falcons again, sandwiched in between all of that. The NFL season kind of coming through the last uh, quarter, if you will, and we'll just see how the uh, Panthers can finish things up, see if they can continue that. Chase of 16 and 0. Again, 1 o'clock kickoff time, 11 o'clock pregame right here on ESPN 730. The guys over at Rock Bottom Brewery after the game for about an hour to talk about what is an exciting matchup today between the Panthers and Falcons, and one we'll get into in depth coming up here on the show today. Headlines coming up next. We'll get into the full slate of uh, some college football. Of course, the Heisman Trophy last night goes to Derrick Henry of Alabama. We'll talk about the ramifications of that and, and really more the voting. And kind of make the case for why Deshaun Watson did not win this award. I, I think that he certainly had a very compelling case for it when you break down the numbers. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the numbers have been broken down a little bit over the course of the last maybe two weeks or so. Thank goodness this is over with now so we don't have to hear about it nonstop. But we'll we'll hear about it one more time. Uh, the Deshaun Watson's numbers probably just didn't didn't hold enough value compared to Henry's uh, in in a couple of key statistics and and we'll get into some of those key statistics as we break down that army navy we want to touch on that again one of the uh, traditional games in college football uh, coming up at 7:30 this morning this has been a topic that Harrison's been chomping at the bit for for a couple of weeks so we're going to finally get into this college basketball or the NBA which is the better product and there are compelling reasons to argue positives for both sides or perhaps negatives for both sides. So we'll get into that coming up around 7.30. We'll have a special sounds from around college football, somewhat of a bowl edition there as well. We'll talk about uh, four bowl eligible teams in the state of North Carolina, of course, that being the Tar Heels, the Duke Blue Devils, North Carolina State's Wolfpack, Appalachian State's Mountaineers, and then we'll expand that out and uh, consider Clemson and their Orange Bowl bid against Oklahoma as uh, you have uh, five teams now from the Carolinas that will be involved in FBS bowl play. And we'll uh, talk with a head coach of one of those teams coming up at 8 o'clock this morning. Scott Satterfield, head coach of Appalachian State. His team celebrating their senior banquet last night. Now all focus for the Mountaineers on the Camellia Bowl and their matchup with Ohio. That is six days from right now. So we'll get some game week insight, if you will, from the head coach of the Mountaineers. NFL notable matchups coming up. We'll also talk with Robert Mays, formerly of Grantland, now with Sports Illustrated and Peter King's Monday morning quarterback. Robert Mays comes up at 845 this morning to discuss some things uh, involving this particular week in the NFL, the playoff push, uh, push and which teams to watch coming down the stretch. Also want to get into the topic of rivalries. You know, we just got out of rivalry week in college football just a couple of weeks ago. We've got a rival matchup across the street today at Bank of America Stadium between the Panthers and Falcons. The question out there is, and, and we'll even take phone calls on this if you are so inclined, or certainly your tweets at Sunday Lead. Do rivalries matter as much in pro sports as they used to because of free agency? 
You know, we used to see people start and stop their NFL calendars over matchups like the Bears and the Packers. And and we certainly used to see the Falcons and Redskins way back in the day, before the Panthers even existed. That was a, a calendar-marking event in the Southeast United States when those two franchises matched up. You can look across the NBA. You can look across the NHL, I'm sure. Certainly Major League Baseball. Does free agency dilute the fact that there used to be franchises and matchups that you would pay to watch and and could not wait to see has that been diluted we're going to get into that topic uh this morning here as well as as we celebrate a rivalry matchup here today in the nfc south between the panthers and the falcons as always like we mentioned tweet us at sunday lead you can also give us a call at any point in time in the show today 704-332-0173 we'll come back with headlines after this our first break here on the sunday lead espn 730 good morning Welcome back into the Sunday Lead here this morning on ESPN 730. David Jackson, Harrison Battle with you. Sunrise over Uptown here this morning. Panthers and Falcons go at 1 o'clock today. We'll get into the full slate of NFL matchups a bit later in the show. Give us, uh, give you our take on what is in store here for the uh, uh, second week, second week, second week of December. Gosh, it's hard to believe the calendars. Moving along as quickly as it is now over the course of the next few weeks, the Panthers will get their full share of NFC divisional play here within the South. They'll play the Falcons twice, the Bucks once before wrapping up the year and heading into the playoffs. That much is already guaranteed. We'll see just how much more of the playoff stake the Panthers can claim here over the course of the next few weeks. Of course, home field advantage throughout the NFC portion of the championship on the line for Carolina. Nine point favorites for the Panthers against the Falcons today, an over under of 46 and a half. Eh, yeah, that sounds about right. I'd, I'd take the nine point favorite, uh, certainly. Uh, this is a matchup, though, Harrison, you can point back to over the course of uh, the last few years. And, and I think that's one of the things that kind of sparks a rivalry conversation that we'll get into later is that this has really, truly developed into a rivalry. That was a point that Marty Herney hit on, uh, on, uh, inside the lines earlier this week. That here you have a team that, that when one team rises, that other team has come to help stub the toe a little bit or, or pull back, uh, a key victory in, in what is an important stretch. Certainly, uh, the Falcons beating the Panthers last year in Charlotte, uh, that was a, a two point win that, that nearly cost, uh, Carolina the opportunity for the playoffs. I believe it was, uh, back in 2012, uh, there was a steamrolling Falcons team that rolled in to play a mostly young kind of upstart Panthers team. And it was the Panthers that day uh, that knocked off, I believe, a, a Falcons team that had won 10 games at the time. That was another late November, early December type matchup. A uh, point being here is that uh, these two teams have matched wits over the course of the last three, four years or so. And one has always had something for the other. So that should make this a compelling game just from a historical standpoint before you even put the foot uh, before you even put the football on the tee today. Yeah, absolutely. The thing that makes you think that this game could go the Panthers' way uh, more so than those other in the past, though, and another one I think of is the game that was in Atlanta a few years back whenever the Falcons, the last seconds of the game, throw over the top of the Panthers' defense. Remember that secondary yep. was so vulnerable that year and end up winning that game in the final seconds of the game. But the thing that makes this matchup so interesting today is that the Falcons 
thus far in the season have had a lot of trouble getting to the quarterback. They're actually last in the NFL right now in sacks. And as we've seen this continued development of Cam Newton, and we've seen the offensive line really be a whole lot better than anybody expected coming into the season, we've seen Cam sit back there and make last-second adjustments, uh, decide when he's going to throw the ball, and really just pick apart defenses that maybe people didn't think he could do coming into the year. And now he's shown that's another element of his game. So Last week we were talking about how bad the Saints defense was and how it would be unbelievable if the Panthers wouldn't be out wouldn't be able to come out and dominate that matchup uh, considering how great it looks for them on paper. This another opportunity for that today, but at least on paper, it looks like the Panthers should be able to pick apart a Falcons defense that doesn't get much pass rush. You would think that the the tail of the tape and and kind of those those bragging rights check boxes, if you will, when you go down a matchup and you say this this unit on this team is better than this unit on this team. If you were to paint sections of the football field today and say line of scrimmage. I would think the Panthers dominate the conversation on both sides of it. From the standpoint of, like you mentioned, with uh, the, the Panthers' offensive line playing as well as they have for Cam Newton, going up against a defensive front that's one of the, the worst teams statistically in the NFL this year in generating action toward the quarterback. But flip it over the other way as well. You've got one of the elite defensive fronts in all of the NFL with Carolina's pass rush and their ability to not only to get to the quarterback from the front level, but also from the linebacking core there as well with guys like Keekley and such. But that going up against an offensive line for Atlanta that has been what has now kind of uh, time has allowed us to understand this is an Achilles heel of the Falcons. It was hinted as such back in training camp. I remember one of the conversations we had out very early in the summer with Wes Durham. He, he went through the entire Atlanta offensive front and was like, this guy's a veteran. This guy's never played. This guy's coming off an injury. And, and you kind of felt like the, the Falcon story was ultimately going to be told, at least from an offensive standpoint, as to how well that group could come together how how solid they could become and how much Matt Ryan, kind of like you just mentioned with Cam Newton, could work behind a group like that. Well, again, you look at Ryan's numbers are down. There's no secret about that. Uh, Julio Jones has struggled to get in the end zone here of late. Uh, Devonta Freeman has struggled to get uh, those uh, those 100-yard benchmarks that, were, uh, that made him the darling of fantasy through the first half of the season. But is that because that Matt Ryan is substandard or is it because he has no time to work? I choose to kind of move more toward the latter in, in the standpoint that this has been a kind of an evolving issue that's just gotten worse and worse and worse as the weeks have gone on. As his numbers go down, you know, the guy can only do so much with what's in front of him. That was an argument that was made to the positive for Cam Newton for so many years. Now that those two things have timed up for Carolina, look at the look at what the benefit of that is. I think in some cases, negatively speaking. The Falcons are regressing in that opposite direction, and now you're seeing Matt Ryan playing with a beleaguered offensive line, and he really doesn't have much that he can do about what is involving in front of him. And it's another thing. We're sitting here at this point in the season saying, okay, well, Matt Ryan started off hot, and now he's not playing well. Well, maybe he's just not that good of a quarterback. Well, maybe there's a gray area in sports. I mean, I don't know how much this has to happen for us to finally learn about that. A guy doesn't have to be good or he doesn't have to be bad, just depending on how he plays for a few games. I think that Matt Ryan's been maybe so underrated throughout his career that at the beginning of the season, whenever he's starting to show you stuff, a few years back, whenever the Falcons looked like they're going to be a juggernaut for for the few years in the NFC South, you're talking about how great that this quarterback can be at that time. And now Matt Ryan's starting to struggle a little bit. And It's almost this thing, I don't want to call Matt Ryan a fringe guy, that's certainly not fair to him, he's one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL, but guys that are maybe underrated, 
we wanted to shut him down so quick. Whenever they start playing bad football, it's like, okay, well, yeah, he's not that good. For instance, whenever somebody that's won for a long time or, or somebody that uh, we like, I guess, in the media, whenever they start playing bad, it's a different perception. It's okay, well, this guy's going to get it back pretty soon. And I think that's something we're seeing with Russell Wilson right now. Early in the season, he's not playing his best football, but you're saying, well, uh, we figure that he's going to turn it around because you have that faith in him. And yeah, maybe it's because they've won championships. Maybe it's because of the success that Seattle's had. But at the same time, it seems like we box these guys into one area and then we never want to take them out of that box. Wherever you're boxed in initially, that's where you're going to stay. And Cam, for some some points, has proven that wrong this year, getting out of where everybody boxed him in, coming into the season. But it's taken forever for them to do that. I mean, they they still, uh, until about a few weeks ago, wanted to still have him in that area. It takes us so long to change our perceptions. Tiger Woods. Yeah. Tiger Woods is a guy that you could never, everybody made every excuse for him known to man until all of his off-the-course stuff happened, and then he could never do right again. The guy rattled off all those wins, what was it, in 12 or 13 or whatever it was. Ah, he's not the same. Uh, yeah, so I see your point there. Interesting point about this matchup. Uh, Julio Jones hasn't scored a touchdown in four weeks. No rushing touchdowns for the Falcons since week six. That's amazing to think about uh, two droughts from a scoring perspective for a team that, again, was putting up points in uh, a plentiful bounty at the beginning of the year. So we'll see, again, how this matchup uh, goes. Uh, From an injury standpoint, not a lot to speak of for the Panthers uh, in terms of uh, long-term issues for the rest of this year. Uh, For this game, Brenton Burson is listed as doubtful. He's been battling a groin injury. You've read about that uh, in the Charlotte Observer. Heard a a ton about that uh, here on ESPN 730 throughout the week. Charles Tillman also listed as doubtful today with a knee. Uh, mostly probables on the injury report for the Falcons. So these two teams coming in pretty healthy uh, for the vast majority of the point here. Uh, Heisman Trophy, that's another thing on the headlines list here today. Derrick Henry wins that. Not much of a surprise there. Uh, we'll talk more in depth about uh, the Heisman uh, coming up here in a few moments in, in kind of a, uh, a retooled sounds from around college football since we didn't have a whole lot of uh, in terms of games yesterday, but uh, just to touch on this briefly here, uh, Derrick Henry uh, was one of the most sturdy, consistent workhorse running backs that the game of college football seen in the last decade. And if you're rewarding consistency, if that is anything in the Heisman metric uh, for how voters vote for this award, I think Derrick Henry is your A number one top choice without question in that regard. That certainly was part of the reason why he was able to run away with the the award as he did. But at the same time, we saw earlier in the season, and you and I talked about it throughout the year, how that Bama-LSU game was going to decide so much, and then obviously LSU's a season kind of towards the end tailspins, and we see all the storylines that come out from Baton Rouge. But if you look back at that time, you're saying, okay, well, Leonard Fournette is the Heisman winner. Early in the season, he has all these runs, and we get back to all the cliche stuff about the Heisman moment, the run that's so epic that you just have it replaying in your mind over and over again. And it seemed like after Derrick Henry in Alabama beat LSU, it seemed like from the rest of the way that Derrick Henry was going to go on and was going to win the Heisman Trophy. And all year long, as well as Deshaun Watson played, and we saw him play phenomenal from the start of the season until the end of the season, he never picked up that Heisman momentum like you would think that he did. Christian McCaffrey was incredible this year, and he plays in Stanford. And I know you can have some of that East Coast, West Coast bias or any of that stuff, but still, just... Just three incredible players, and at the same time, Derrick Henry, very deserving of this award. But 
you can make just as strong of a case as you can for Derrick Henry, for Deshaun Watson, as well as for Christian McCaffrey. Yeah, we'll talk about some numbers coming up in our, uh, again, uh, kind of retooled sounds from around college football as we uh, discuss Heisman voting, some of the numbers that existed for Watson, and why maybe if you hold one player up to the next, uh, that, that those numbers may have been skewed a bit toward one player or the other. Plenty of Army-Navy talk coming up here in about 30 minutes as well. Uh, as we move along through headlines here, big upset yesterday in college hoops. Third-ranked North Carolina kind of looking for some uh, stabilizing ground. They've got Marcus Page back in the mix. They go on the road to Texas yesterday and see one come down the stretch at the buzzer that didn't necessarily bode well for the home state team. 82-82, five seconds to go. Taylor, front court for Texas. Step back three, no good. Long rebound, Felix. Does it count? Yeah. It does. Felix hit the two-point jumper at the buzzer. That's Jones Angel on the Tar Heel Sports Network from Learfield Sports. North Carolina drops a game to Texas, 84-82. Javon Felix buzzer beater counted by about a hundredth of a second. Put back off of an offensive rebound, I think, as Carolina fans wake up this morning, the term offensive rebounding or boxing out. Those those might be haunting the Carolina fan as they hit the snooze button a few times this morning. North Carolina shot 52%, but they were out-rebounded 36-27 in this game and, and had one of the worst statistical performances in terms of offensive rebounding under Roy Williams. Now, that's somewhat skewed by the fact they shot 52%, but still, there were so many second chances that Texas had, especially down the stretch when they when they basically uh, uh, put themselves in a position to win the game that, that you're just not used to seeing uh, under Roy Williams' coach teams. And this Carolina team, after they get Marcus Page back, like you mentioned, it looks like a team that's going to compete for the NCAA title. You don't know what's going to come in the future for Carolina as far as allegations go, but they have something that I think you see some teams across the NCAA have this year, but some teams certainly not that we've seen go on and win for titles in the past, and they have a lot of experience. They have the guys that last year were coming in and were highly recruited freshmen that are starting to play much better, Justin Jackson being one of those, Theo Pinson being another, and then you're also seeing the Tar Heels uh, have the veteran leadership that they have from Bryce Johnson as well as Marcus Page and some of the other players. But this is a win for Texas, and this is something where I think if this happens in college football, we're discussing it way more. Shaka Smart here in his first season with the Longhorns goes and gets the win against number three North Carolina. And we've seen North Carolina be vulnerable on the road in the past, but still a humongous win for Texas. And uh, hey, what about that thing where the team that's unranked goes on and beats one of the perceived national title hopes? Who do they play next? Appalachian State, you'll hear that game right here on ESPN 730 coming up Tuesday night, 715 the airtime. And uh, interesting to see once we get to Texas, kind of the thought process around Shaka Smart, because, you know, uh, Shaka brought that that Havoc style of defense. A lot of folks, and I listened to the North Carolina pregame show yesterday, and, and Jones Angel and Eric Montross were debating at length about whether that style of defense translates to the high major player. And, and certainly... This You could make the argument, while it wasn't truly havoc, Texas did wreak havoc on North Carolina from a defensive scheme standpoint yesterday, especially late in that contest. And you heard Shaka Smart say in his postgame comments on ESPN yesterday uh, that, that while North Carolina still scored in the 80s, they were able to get key stops down the stretch because of defensive awareness and defensive principles. And certainly you have to tip your hat uh, toward Shaka Smart, who gets his signature win as the head coach of Texas. As you start to pay a little bit more attention to college basketball, a couple other scores that might uh, get your eye uh, turned into uh, – 
some of the the more telling matchups of December. Wichita State, a win over nationally ranked Utah yesterday, 67-50. Wichita State looks like they're still going to be that premier mid-major program operating out of the Missouri Valley this year and uh, and certainly has some local ties to that. Also, Michigan State outlasts Florida in a defensive struggle yesterday, 58-52. You bring up that against uh, uh, about the top-ranked team and that it's the way the Spartans won that game. Four-point game, 30 seconds to play, but Michigan State fundamentally goes down and knocks down six free throws in the final half minute to win that ball game. So uh, we'll get into more college basketball discussion as we go on throughout this program into the month of January, but certainly uh, those are a few of the teams to watch out for. NBA action here on Headlines as we wrap things up. Uh, before we get to the, uh, uh, I guess, the team that helped now the Panthers become the only Undefeated team in all of professional sports. We'll touch on Milwaukee Golden State in a moment, but be remiss without uh, mentioning the Charlotte Hornets, even though they lost to the Celtics 98-93. You're still looking at a Hornets team that put together a very solid week. Wins over the Pistons, the Heat, the Grizzlies, the way they defeated the Grizzlies after being down early in that game. Three in one week to improve to 15 and eight. I still think that Steve Clifford, Michael Jordan, the, the full crew, uh, over, uh, uh, at Time Warner Cable Arena has to be impressed with the way that the Hornets continue to answer the bell a little bit. Similar to the Panthers, maybe not necessarily the magnitude, but every time there's somebody to cast a little bit of doubt, these guys have seemed to answer that call and then some throughout the course, at least the early portion of the season. Yeah, last night's a loss against the Celtics that, uh, coming off a back to back against a very tough Grizzlies team, a team that's going to take you to every single thing that you have. Deep defensively it's a tough game to come home and play against the Celtics and the Celtics that played against the Warriors the night before and that double overtime matchups of both of these teams coming in very fatigued and very tired and the Hornets on the fourth game of a four-game trip on the week but still this is a very impressive week for the Hornets because we saw this team uh, really and I think it's a lot to do with coaching and we'll get into that a little bit more later on in the program but we've seen this team really uh, just uh, redefine itself we, we saw a team that in the past relied so heavily on Al Jefferson relied on that defensive mentality and switched over to the offensive side this year and we've seen Nick Batum be a player that has really uh, shown that he's one of the better players all-around players in the NBA always thought of as being a great two-way player as far as offensively and then you move over that to defensively but here being asked to be in a bigger role for the Hornets he's scoring the basketball he's passing the basketball he's rebounding the basketball and best case scenario coming into the season you want for those Hornets players to go ahead and take a step up we've seen very impressive play from Frank Kaminsky of recently we've seen Kimba Walker shoot better than he ever has in his career so a great time right now if you're a Charlotte sports fan. You look at the game that was uh, kind of the byproduct of that double overtime ball game between uh, the Warriors and the Celtics that put Golden State on the court against Milwaukee. And for the first time this year, Golden State goes down. Inbound to Barbosa. Three seconds, two seconds, one second. Buzzer and ball game. The Golden State Warriors are now 24-1. and one. And the Bucks are 10-15. and 15. And they're the talk of the NBA tonight, Dennis. Talk of the NBA tonight. Maybe not so much Dennis. today. And a baby, Dennis. The Bucks, the Bucks knock off Golden State 109-95. Uh, Luke Walton uh, kind of gave uh, some credence to the fact that this is only one game, but he still says that losing that one game is still less than desirable. Losing sucks. And even if you're 24-1, and losing still sucks. But I'm sure... You know, the long flight home, tomorrow off, guys just kind of unwinding a little bit. I bet there will be a little bit of relief. 
little bit of relief. I, I could definitely see that. Uh, and and you're looking at a team now that can refocus a little bit. There's so much, especially in today's media age, that's placed on a team that's going after a mark like that. Uh, to finally have that over, done with, processed, 24-1, and one, you're still the class of the NBA no matter what happens. And we'll see how Golden State responds to that. That's our run through headlines when we come back we'll debate some more basketball here before we get back into football for the vast majority of the show here college basketball or the nba which is the better product or is there a best product we'll get into that discussion next here on the sunday lead espn 730 Welcome back into the Sunday lead here this morning on ESPN 730. David Jackson, Harrison Battle back with you. Program that lasts as long as about 200 UFC fights. Reminds you almost of the Mike Tyson fights from back in the day. You know, when Tyson would make everybody pay about 50 bucks, probably even more than that, to watch on pay-per-view, he'd knock somebody out in like 58 seconds. Everybody sitting around the bean dips, not even not even beginning to get lukewarm yet, coming out of the fridge, and you're like, oh, well, that was it. Let's put in a Rocky movie. You have the guy that went to the bathroom, he comes back, he's like, hey, has the fight started yet? Ah, sorry, buddy, it's already done. 13 seconds. Incredible. 13 seconds, wow. Amazing. Well, it's one of those things, you think about 13 seconds with a context in sports, and, uh, you know, college football, 13 seconds is usually about two plays. College basketball, 13 seconds, lasts about four and a half minutes of actual elapsed time. 13 seconds in the NBA means the team could bring the ball to half court probably about four or five times. Just one team, not the other team. They could bring it to, to half court about four or five times. Uh, we, we, we kid, we laugh, we joke. But one of the topics on the program today is we tend to take uh, you know some of those more mundane things in, in the sports world, kind of turn it on their heads. That's one of our favorite pastimes here on the Sunday lead. And kind of get into this notion of while certainly you're not debating the skill level here, no secret that professional athletes are professional, college athletes are amateur, and then that's just kind of the way that is. That's the way it's designed. That's the way it always will be. If you went on brand of basketball, what is your more desirable choice, especially as we start to venture more into basketball season. Now that college football is beginning to wind into bowl season, that will soon be over as much as some of you may hate to admit that the NFL playoffs will be starting here in uh, a little bit more than a month. So that will soon be over, except for in this city, of course, where the playoffs will live on much beyond the next month of football. But as you begin to get that basketball taste in your mouth, what is it that your palate likes the most? Is it the NBA game? Is it the college game? Harrison, we'll let you give the first take. All right, so first off, it's just really interesting. And I like I, how you're defensive already. So first <laughs> off. Well, what I was going to say is that uh, we'll see whether this is a 13-second fight between me and you right here or whether it takes a full five rounds. But, but yeah, the thing that's interesting to begin with is that whenever you look at college football and you look at pro football, I think for the most point, for the most part, people look at it and they say, okay, well, that's football. It's football no matter what. And, yes, the games are played very differently, and we see some of these things carry over from the college to the pro game. We see some of these pro coaches go back down to college and things within that. But whenever you talk to somebody that's a diehard fan of the NBA or somebody that's a diehard fan of college basketball, they believe without a doubt that their product is far superior and actually you and I were talking about this earlier in the week because I very much believe that the NBA is a better product than college basketball all the way around and I felt like at the time you having called college basketball for a long time having been around it that you would think that college basketball was a far superior product turns out you think that they're both awful 
Uh, I think awful is a strong word, but I would go with uh, certainly declining. I, I'm not a fan of the NBA. I've, I've made that a point before on this program. I think it's great that the Hornets are off to the start that they are. I, I applaud the local team. I like to get behind the local team if they're playing well. And certainly the Hornets will bring more interest to the casual NBA fan or perhaps the non-NBA fan around this area just because of the fact that they're winning. And everybody likes a winner, and bandwagon fans are bandwagon fans. So I'm not buying a T-shirt yet, but I'm at least casually interested in how the local team is playing and performing, uh, especially when not much was considered of them. To me, the NBA game is very um, lackadaisical at times. Uh, on the defensive end of the floor. I like basketball where there is defense involved. I'm not a fan of 130 to 128. I'm a fan of, uh, at least in the pro standpoint, 92 to 85. Show me defense. Show me five guys committed to stopping the ball going the hole, and I get excited. That is why I personally feel, and this is my own personal opinion here, not associated with any of the things that I am associated with, my personal opinion is that is where college basketball is starting to move. It is becoming NBA light. It is becoming pick and roll. It's becoming five guys just walk down to the one end of the floor and do whatever they want to do, and they're certainly not going to play defense while they think of the next offensive play. And you see more elevated scores. You see 98-95. You know, yesterday, uh, that North Carolina game, what was it that won the game for Texas? It was defense down the stretch. It was finding a way to get five guys to buy into a concept that says, stop the other team from scoring. That's what I like. That's 10 years ago. You saw college basketball have a much more defensive, team-oriented feel to it. I think that has been largely lost on the sport. And the teams that I enjoy watching are the teams that that have some sort of cerebral tendency to them that say, hey, we're going to run an offensive play. It's not all about transition. And you hear all these these coaches when they get their jobs, they say, well, we're going to be fast-paced and up and down, and, and we're going to do this and that. And it's like, well, is that code for we're just going to let them do whatever they want to do? Because that, if you if you hear, if you listen to the press conference and you hear the coach follow that comment with saying, we're a player's program, that is code for, we are going to let the best player take the ball and do whatever he wants to do with it. There's going to be no semblance of offense, and we're, again, certainly not going to play any defense. Show me a team that plays defense, I will become a fan of that team. There is no team in the NBA currently that strikes me as a huge defensive team. That's wrong. It's just okay. flat out wrong. All right. All right. So so <laughs> where where is it? All right. Well, a few years ago, the Hornets were that defensive team. And, yeah, you've seen this team go from the defensive mentality to the offensive mentality, but still be able to keep that defensive And when they were prowess. a defensive team, the Grizzlies, what did they do? The Grizzlies are a defensive team. What did they team. do when they were a def- defensive team? They won games. They won games, right? Yeah. They but, were in a, I mean, they were in the playoffs. They, they got to the playoffs, and, and we all knew that that was short-lived, but they won games. They won with defense. See, I would say that your biggest issue when looking at these two things is that you don't consider the coaching, and you don't consider this is on a team-by-team basis. If you're watching a Sacramento a Sacramento Kings game against a, any given team, let's go ahead and say the Sixers. God forbid if you're actually tuning in to watch that game, but if you are... Yeah, you're going to see some terrible basketball all the way around because you have players that are raw, you have coaches that are raw, you have all these different issues that don't allow you to have the best product possible. 
But I think whenever you see like a Golden State Warriors game versus the Spurs or some of these top level matchups where you have coach going against coach, for instance, the other night, whenever you have the Warriors taking on the Celtics, Brad Stevens has taken Great his coaching success. Matchup. He's taken his success at Butler to a success in the NBA. And you see just these unbelievable play calls that you don't see in college because of the 24 second shot clock. I think that that's the biggest argument for the NBA is the fact that that 24 second shot clock just makes the game so much more compelling because down the stretch in those final two minutes, you still have a lot of possessions okay, left. So two- you have so many different ways that it can go. And that's where you see the pretenders and the contenders, the coach two- that can call a play in that last final second and get his team to score. And then the coaches, they're just like, well, we don't really know what to do. So our star player is going to dribble the basketball a few times, take a fade away. And we're going to see what happens from there. To that point, There are roughly 350, give or take the number, 350 teams that play Division I college basketball. There are not 10 teams that benefit from the shot clock being shorter because they do not possess the skill to offensively operate. And I'm not talking about run a play. I'm talking about keep the basketball in their possession. How much have you really noticed from an offensive efficiency? Now go back and look at the numbers. Offensive efficiency in the shortened shot clock is worse now because the teams can't hold on to the ball because they are so less superior from a fundamental standpoint than they used to be that those things are not ingrained. You don't need to ingrain them. If you're just going to say, here's the ball, I'm going to roll it to the middle of the floor and go get it. There, Maybe there's a compelling entertainment aspect of that, but I think there are enough people from from a traditionalist standpoint that enjoy watching a team play defense, watching a team run a set play and execute at the end of the play. The shot clock's great. Use the whole thing. What about game tempo and all of those things about how, you know, I, I love coaches. I love watching coaches go X and O against each other. And, and there are certainly, this is not a, a, a condemnation of coaching. What it is to me is a condemnation of, of talent saying, I will listen to my coach. I think that execution is down. I think that that coaches' hands are tied anymore because if you've got a team of superstars, it is hard to rein in the team of superstars to say, guys, look, you know, all right, I'll put it in these contexts. You've got an NBA, let's say you've got an NBA top five player, not Stephen Curry because he's cut from that old school mold, all right? Any other player, let's take Kobe, for example. Kobe of five years ago, we'll even make this a fair argument. If if it's up to Kobe to make the shot or defend the shot with five seconds left in a game, which is he more apt to do? Uh, I think he's probably going to pass the basketball. <laughs> right, exactly <laughs> right. But but that's why I'm. And there are so many examples of that. I, I just think that that fundamentally we wonder why you know the the game of college basketball again from an efficiency standpoint is different. I, I just think it's it's fundamentals. It's it's about finding a compelling way to get those teams rallied and motivated. And when you look at March Madness, what are they? What are the teams that the nation falls in love with? They're the darling teams that are the band of five-year committed nobodies that turn around and beat one of these big dogs because they play the game. They play the game well and they execute the game well. And those things. Uh, again, to a casual fan, especially on the NBA side of things, that grabs your attention when you see a team play a defense. I, I do enjoy the NBA in the finals after after the fourth game because there's a team that's going to win it at some point in time, and that's when the defense gets good. That's when the team that's down starts to play like they're down, and that becomes really good basketball. See, I think that this is the mis- uh, misperception that you see so many people that don't watch the NBA on a nightly basis or even on a, a I don't know, a monthly basis. 
watch the games is you see all these teams that don't necessarily play the best product of basketball. I think if you're a Hornets fan and you've gone in, I, I think if it's all right. So the state of North Carolina, this is something that we've debated for a long time. In the state of North Carolina, where you have the tobacco road rivalries, you have the ACC is college basketball or can the NBA ever surpass college basketball because of the roots that college basketball has? I think if you're a Hornets fan that a few years ago was looking at this team coached by Mike Dunlap and seeing the way that this team was run, seeing the players that were on the floor, and then you've seen how Coach Clifford has molded this team. He's brought in different players. He continues to find ways to win with this group, whether it be defensively, whether it be offensively. I think that that makes you a fan of the game because you see that extra element. I think that's one of the reasons that some of these young teams, the Boston Celtics, the Charlotte Hornets, well-coached NBA teams are more fun to watch than any other team in basketball because from possession to possession, there is something that they're doing. There's a strength for every single player on that team for them to be able to have the most success on a nightly basis. And I just think too often times these teams that don't play defense and and these teams that aren't necessarily playing the best product of basketball give the rest of the league a bad product. And I think the NBA is the only league where you see that happen. We don't look at the NFL and see some of these bottom feeder teams and say that's the product that represents the rest of the league. We don't look at college basketball and say that either. But for some reason, we judge the NBA more on the bottom feeders than we do those top teams. But you just said well-coached team, and I'll give you the fact that Steve Clifford is squeezing every ounce of what he's gotten out of the Hornets out of that. But let's take it to a different element here and say that the Hornets are are more indicative of a good uh, I don't want to say this in the way that it's going to come out it's going to sound bad <laughs> they are they they play a style that's more reminiscent of a great college team and what I mean by that is that there is no superstar there's no guy that commands the ball 12 out of 13 possessions in the fourth quarter and and it's only going to be him to take the shot it, the, the Panthers, in some regards, are the same way. Cam Newton is a is a franchise quarterback that doesn't act like one. I, I don't think, especially this year, what's made him so good that he's spreading the ball around, that he's he's becoming more dynamic from an offensive standpoint. You look at teams that that are void the superstar and have great leadership. So you take Steve Clifford. I'll I'll take one of my favorite examples: Joe Madden and the Chicago Cubs. There is not a superstar on that team. That's why they won. They had a skipper who treated them like a college team. He even made reference to that numerous times through the year, that these guys are like a college group, that we are able to instill things in them, that there are no preconceived roles, there are no preconceived notions, there are no feelings that I've got to be the guy. It's all about finding the collective guy. And I think that's the turnoff with the NBA, is that I don't want to see Kobe take that shot when he can't hit it. I want to see him pass the freaking rock and give it to somebody that can make the shot. Why are the Lakers so bad? It's because that dude's still on the floor thinking that he's 10 years and younger. Nobody, nobody's going to argue that. And that is, yeah, you've got yeah, so that is the compa- That is the argument from the casual fan's perspective against why the NBA is, is not necessarily the superior product to anything. The bad part about that is, is that same aspect has taken root in college basketball. College athletes mimic professional athletes. There's no doubt about that. Now you're looking at guys that are taking shots in college games that have no business taking those shots. You don't need to take a fadeaway NBA 3 as a collegiate player. You're, you, earth to you, you're not going to hit that shot. Okay? <laughs> you're not, you're just not going to hit it. And if you do, that's only going to give you license to take it 10 more times. And you're going to hit it twice and your team's going to lose by 10. That, that, we've seen that story develop. So 
You know, it's, it's a, it comes down to a fundamental issue. It comes down to, to watchability. You're right. The bottom feeders in the NBA, I will agree with that point. The bottom feeders of the NBA do seem to get more credibility for giving more of a, I guess, a license as to what the NBA actually represents. And that's unfair because there are teams like the Warriors. But how are the Warriors doing it, man? I mean, they've got a superstar that doesn't right, act okay. like it. He's not even the highest paid player but, on his team. Yeah, and that's a whole other issue that we're not going to get into at this time. And it's one of the reasons that you have this conundrum in the NBA is because you're right. You do need a superstar to win in this league. You need a guy that in the final seconds of the shot clock can make a shot, can do something in those final seconds. Difference to go between ahead and superstar team, and egomaniac. To go ahead, exactly. To go ahead and give your team the lead. And that's definitely an issue because it makes it harder for these small market teams to be able to compete because you have to do it through the draft. And that's another, another example where if you're a Hornets fan, you're looking at the blueprint of the Oklahoma City Thunder where they got incredibly lucky, did an incredibly well or a great job of drafting the players that they did to have the success that they did. The Golden State Warriors, the exact same way where you have these once-in-a-lifetime players, and it does, I, I will give you this, it does make the league different, and it's almost, uh, I don't know, I, I guess confusing and two-sided, the fact that, yes, the best product on the floor is whenever you have these teams that don't necessarily have a superstar that are just well-coached, and that coach knows how to get the best product possible out of their guys, but it's impossible for those teams to win in the end because you need that guy that can make the final shot in the final seconds of the shot clock, and you frankly not need that superstar to be able to win. I don't think it's impossible. I, I think that, and again, it's a bad example from one standpoint, but the exact right example in the other. You see, you see the humbleness of a guy like Curry, and you see a guy that's willing to take less money so you can spread it around to get key role players that make the All team right. a better fit. Well, that's, that's just wrong. The reason that he has less money is because whenever that contract situation came up, he had all the ankle injuries. And that's one of the reasons Golden State's so successful is because they've been able to build the team around his contract. I think that's something you've heard a lot of media and personalities talk about. And not one time have about. you heard him talk about lockouts, walkouts, buyouts, no, whatever. Outside. No, he's, I'm he's not going to play he's because I'm, yeah, Nobody's going to argue that. He's a great that. teammate, and, and I think guys want to play for a great teammate. They want to play with a great teammate. And so and, and he's gonna get his and he's getting his. It's not like the dude's like still hitting up <laughs> Dell for fives after practice. He is he is the I think he is what could save the NBA for the casual fan. It's finding a guy that you can get excited about. Whether he plays for your team or your hometown team or whatever, I think he gets a lot of run around here because he's from around here, but but that run is national now. Because he's just that kind of guy. He's humble. He is the guy to take the shot most of the time. But dude's not afraid to pass the rock if he doesn't have the open shot. And that's where I think the NBA gets soured for the, the casual fan when you see the the guy, in quotations, take contested shot after contested shot when four other guys are standing there wide open at the end of the game and their team loses by three. Why do I want to watch that game? I, I just don't. Yeah, but again, you're talking about the bottom feeders, the teams that you're I'm talking, talking about. I'm not you're talking, talking about, about teams all the bottom do, feeders. You're talking about the, the teams like Nick Young for the Lakers. And yeah, we're bringing it back to the Lakers for some reason that I really don't know why. I don't why. even know who Nick Young is. I know you don't. <laughs> the teams at the very end of games, they're just taking these terrible shots and, and switching that back to the college point. And I was very surprised whenever you said that you thought 
that college basketball wasn't as pure of a basketball product because as it, it used to the be. NBA. And I understand that. But it's also because these guys are taking so much into draft stock. I look back at Harrison Barnes whenever he was at Carolina. His sophomore year, he was thinking about what he was going to do in the NBA the next year. So he starts taking these shots that really aren't within his repertoire. He's taking these fadeaways at the end of games. He's dribbling the basketball, trying to fake out a defender and pulling back and putting up the shot. Shots that he doesn't have to take in that Warriors offense. And again, going back to coaching, having a guy like that that fits within a system that you say you do this and you do this. Defined roles makes the best product possible, point blank, end of story. You're right, and if the actual players actually paid attention to that stuff, maybe it would make for more watchable television on both sides of the ledger. That's why I say, is it is it good? Is there a superior product, or is the whole inferior? And I think you could you could argue that that logic. I, I think you could say again because of the way that college basketball mimics. It seems like the worst of the NBA at times, and I'm talking collective college basketball here. You show me a, no matter the sport, you show me a coach that's got control of their players and get them to run the play with five seconds left on the clock. I'll watch that team. But when that play is just, we're going to get it to him on an isolation and let him roll right or left. Well, fantastic. Do you know what the worst part of that is? Is that the team doesn't defend it. They know it's coming. High ball screen, left or right. There's nobody there and that guy gets an open shot and he misses it. Yeah. And then the team celebrates like they've done something defensively. Like, what are you doing? I mean, just whatever. We've got to move along. We've we've gone way too far on this topic anyway. But the compelling uh, thoughts on basketball, I'm sure that's going to get you in the mood to watch the game later on today. We're going to talk college football next. Scott Satterfield, the head coach of Appalachian State, will join us. We'll also get into some sounds of college football later on in the program and talk plenty more about NFL Week 14. It's right around the corner. Panthers and Falcons today at Bank of America Stadium. We roll on after this on the Sunday Lead, ESPN 730. Beautiful day here in the Queen City as we come into hour number two of the Sunday lead here on ESPN 730. Sun is out. Temps in the low 70s for this almost mid-December football game later on this afternoon between the Panthers and the Falcons. Again, kickoff at 1 o'clock at Bank of America Stadium. Pre-game coverage here on ESPN 730 continues at 11 o'clock with the official pre-game show right here at the corner of Church and Moorhead at the ESPN 730 worldwide headquarters and then after the game catch up with the guys over at rock bottom brewery for about an hour after conclusion of the panthers falcons matchup first of two in the next three weeks and uh, they'll break down things in full get you ready for uh, action next week as well as we mentioned earlier in the program there are five teams in the carolinas if you include clemson in this that are bowl eligible four in the state of north carolina and the head coach of one of those programs joins us now on the phone line you'll hear his Appalachian State Mountaineers six days from now taking on the Ohio Bobcats in the Raycom Media Camellia Bowl down in Montgomery, Alabama. Head coach Scott Satterfield of Appalachian State joining us. Coach, welcome in this morning to the Sunday Lead. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dave. Coach, I know last night you had a, a nice banquet to honor your senior class, and, and that kind of kicks off game week, if you will. Uh, as a coach of a team that's been through the transitional elements that, that your Appalachian State program has, uh, just kind of lay out there for us how rewarding it is to get a chance to see seniors enjoy a moment that I'm sure three years ago uh, might not have necessarily been on their radar. Yeah, we've, we've certainly come a long way since uh 
since that spring when we announced that we were making a jump to the FBS. You know, that, that was a hard meeting, I think, with our players to tell them that you're not really playing for anything this year. You're, you're in the Southern Conference. You can't go to the playoffs. And that was kind of a blow to that football team. And these guys were sophomores at that point. Uh, but they've come a long way since then. And, and you know, last year, we, we for the first year we played in the Sun Belt Conference, and we ended up going 6-2 and two in, that, in that year and finishing third in the league. And then, you know, for this year, this senior year, coming back, we're full-fledged members now and playing football. And these guys had an outstanding year. Finished seven and one in the conference and won ten games. And now they get rewarded. And uh, so it's been a long journey over the last three years, but I'm certainly rewarding now to be able to go play uh, in the Camellia Bowl. Appalachian State, one of only two teams in the history of transitional teams from the FCS to the FBS to win 10 or more games in that first bowl-eligible season after their transition, joining only the 1997 Randy Moss-led Marshall Thundering Herd in that category. And when you think about it in that context, Coach, you're you're talking about not only a team that makes transition and and makes that transition to a league that at the time that Appalachian joined it was incredibly competitive uh, last two years, putting more bowl-eligible teams out there than there were slots that the league had allotted. Uh, What does that say to the, the... the fact that your program has done this largely on the backs of players that were committed here before, that were part of that FCS era, if you will, and the coaching that they have received to, to allow them to excel at the FBS level in a strong league and be able to produce championship-like results. Yeah, you know, we, just, we didn't really envision to be able to go win 10, 10 games this year, I, I don't think. I think when you look back two years ago, there were a lot of naysayers that, that thought, uh, you know, we were kind of just getting thrown to the wolves and it was going to be extremely hard to transition into uh, FBS, um, and we all know how hard it is, uh, especially when you're trying to get your scholarship numbers up. You know, we're 63 scholarships. We're in FCS. And, you know, and in a short period of time, we're now we're above 80 scholarships, but you're still such a young team in terms of, you know, getting that number to over 80. Um, and so in, in order to come in and, and be so competitive like we have been, it's been, it's been awesome to see our coaching staff and, and all our support staff surrounded with our program has done an outstanding job and, Everybody stuck with the process. Nobody panicked when we were struggling there early on, you know, two or three years ago. We just kept working every day, trying to get better every single day. And our guys, to their credit, have really focused on the opponent that we play, you know, week in and week out. They didn't worry about what we've done in the past or what we're going to do in the future. They just stayed in the moment. And I think that is critical, you know, when you're dealing with, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds to stay focused in the moment. And I think that's how we've been able to have so much success this early on in our transition. Scott Satterfield, the head coach of Appalachian State, joining us here this morning on the Sunday lead. His Mountaineers taking on the Ohio Bobcats Saturday, 5.30 Eastern time. The kickoff, you'll hear pregame coverage start at 2 o'clock in the afternoon right here on ESPN 730 next Saturday. And, Coach, what can you tell us about the Bobcats of Ohio? Uh, Like Appalachian, I know that they were grabbing headlines early in the year for getting off to a hot start. How did Frank Solich lead his Bobcats to the finish line? Yeah, they, they, they certainly have a solid football team. I've, I came in this morning about 6.30 just trying to get that extra jump on these guys. It's been a busy week for us. Um, you know, they're, they're a very, uh, co- very coached, uh, well team. Uh, offensively, defensively, uh, they, they just play extremely hard. Um, they, uh, they're where they're supposed to be. I don't think they let you, you know, get any cheap yards. You know, looking at their defense, they, uh, they're very solid. Um, you know, and as you look back at their schedule, they beat a they beat a Marshall team that won nine games this year. They finished the season on and beating an NIU team that played for the MAC championship. That's been a perennial, you know, bowl team and a perennial team to to compete for the championship in the MAC. So, 
Um, they're certainly a very solid football team. We all coach Solis know we know how how good a coach he is. Um, found out this past week that he, this, he's been in 35 different bowl games. So he's a veteran as far as coaching college football. Most of that damage he did at Nebraska, but over the last uh, you know 10 years at Ohio University, he's really done an outstanding job with it, with this with his football team. So with 35 bowl games under his belt, I would imagine that he's got like a bowl T-shirt for every day of the month, not just the week, <laughs> but the month, right? <laughs> I guess. Uh, when I saw him last week in Montgomery, I, you know, I didn't realize he had played that many. Man, we're going to have to sit down and talk about the experiences and what we need to do to have to compete in this bowl game, you know, just joking around with him. But he's certainly been around a lot of good football teams, knows what it takes to win. And, and you can see that when you watch the film. They're, 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 um, they are a very good football team. Coach, one of the uh, uh, stories that we've been mentioning today here on this program is the fact that there are five teams from the Carolinas, if you include Clemson in that mix, that are heading to uh, FBS Bowls, and certainly that uh, speaks well for football around the area. You had a chance first and foremost on the front lines to see the Clemson Tigers play back in week two of the year and certainly see Deshaun Watson uh, operate at the at the helm of the QB spot. Yesterday he finishes third in the Heisman voting. Uh, is that something that, that you support, I guess? That, that Deshaun Watson would be the third best player, but uh, what is it or what was it about him that stuck out in your mind, the competitor, uh, that at least put him in that conversation? Well, you know, going into our game against those guys, we played them really early in the season. Uh, you know, coming off an ACL the, the year before and really played well uh, the year before, so we knew how, how talented he was, but you really don't get a sense for it until you actually you know, stand on the football field with him and you see how the size he has because he's a big kid. And then you see his athleticism and how he can run around and extend plays. Well, what we didn't realize was how good of armor he had. You know, he, he made some incredible throws against us. Uh, well, we got guys in coverage and he just kind of, he overthrew them. I mean, he outthrew our coverage. And so he is an extreme talented person. Uh, and, and I can see how, uh, Clemson has done such a great job this year. They have an outstanding defense. We thought one of the better defenses that we've faced here in a long, long time. Um, it is hard to move the ball. They don't give you anything. And then you turn around on the other side, and Deshaun is just distributing the ball to those playmakers, especially the wide receivers that, who can really run. So, uh, but now, and more importantly than that, I think he's just a great individual. He was very classy in everything that he did. Uh, Coach Sweeney's done a great job with his program there at Clemson. Coach, you see a guy like Deshaun Watson spend the better part of the last three days in New York City. You've got your team has been through final exams. You had your senior banquet. Your coaching staff's been recruiting, and we talk all year long about the consistency of college football. Yet it seems like heading into bowl season, that's when the the schedules and the the norms and the traditions of just about every team that's left playing football get thrown completely to the wind because of the nature of the time of year. How essential is it to get some sense of normalcy out of bowl time for bowl-winning teams to be successful? Well, I think you have to do it, but it's extremely difficult, as we found out this year. You know, one thing for us is we played last weekend. You know, that that's hard. You know, usually that's kind of set aside for your championship-type games. But our, our season in the Sun Belt extended all the way into December. So we got put behind a little bit. We had to get out and recruit the first part of last week. We also had exams all last week. We had graduation yesterday. We had seven of our seniors that walked yesterday that graduated. Um, so we've had a lot of distractions, uh, you know, outside of football, but we've tried to still continue to practice and focus on that. So what we're going to do today, we'll really zero in on Ohio University and, and really, um, you know, put everything else aside. We have to get back to our normal routine. Today is a Sunday. It's for us. It's game week. 
So we'll get back on a normal routine this week. And, of course, it is a little bit different because the fact that we will be traveling out on Tuesday to go to Montgomery. Um, and there will be distractions all week down there. But this is a, a team that, that, that knows how to focus when they need to, when it's time to meet and time to practice. And I'm sure they'll continue to do that next week. And that, that if we do, then we'll be able to play a great game. Uh, I think the team that can focus the most once you get to Montgomery will, will be the one that, that goes out and plays the best. Coach, I know you've been on both ends of the spectrum. Do you like playing what essentially is a schedule that, that treats it almost like an off week for your team this past week and then jumping right back into the calendar and, and playing your bowl game pretty quickly uh, from the end of the year? Or do you like having having time to to get that full 15 practice window in uh, and, and utilize the bowl prep as almost a mini spring practice from that regard. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, we'll find out. You know, I think Ohio, they, they're going to be off three weeks before they play, uh, you know, because they, they finished up a week ahead of us. And and so we'll find out how, how it all works out. But I, but I kind of like the way we have it set up now because it's almost basically like an off week, and then we get right back on schedule. We were, we're beat up here toward the end of the season, so we needed a little bit of time off to let our guys heal up and, and get back at it. So I think this week, you know, a lot of our guys will be healed up. They'll be uh, eager to get back on the field and, and hopefully – We'll treat, you know, we've been pretty good after a bye week. If you go back and look over the last seven games that we've had bye weeks, our, our guys usually come out and play great um, after that fresh, uh, you know, a fresh break. And, and then they, they get also get time mentally to get a little bit of a break as well. So we, we wanted to do that last week. So they're eager to get back to it this week. You know, we want to go down here, not just to go to a bowl game. We want to go get a win. Final question for Appalachian State Head Coach Scott Satterfield joining us here this morning on the Sunday Lead. Coach, I know to the Mountaineer fan base and those that are listening, uh, second only to Appalachian State football, I'd, I'd say if that's 1A, 1B is their love of barbecue. All right, so you're going to Montgomery. I understand that this past week you experienced Dreamland barbecue for the first time. I guess my question is, did it live up to the hype? <laughs> yeah, it was pretty good. Uh, you know, so I, you know, all the fans that'll be headed down to uh, Montgomery shortly to stop by Dreamland. They treated us well. Um, you know, and that thing about the city of Montgomery, we were there last week. Everybody's very excited to get the Mountaineers down there. We, they know the fan base. They've seen the ticket sales, and so they're pumped about that. So our fans will be treated well in the city of Montgomery, and it'll be a, it'll be a great time for all of that nation. Well, Coach, uh, best of luck with uh, bowl prep, and uh, we look forward to uh, catching up with you again a little bit later on in the year. Thanks for joining us again this morning. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, David. All right, that's Scott Satterfield, head coach of the Mountaineers of Appalachian State. Again, you can keep up with all of the full bowl week coverage for the Mountaineers right here on ESPN 730, up to and including game coverage on Saturday starting at 2 o'clock in the afternoon with Appalachian Gridiron Spotlight rolling right into the bottom line game day edition and then Pigskin Prelude from down at Crampton Bowl in Montgomery as Appalachian State gets set to enjoy their first bowl experience as a member of the FBS. We'll take a time out. We'll have plenty more of the Sunday lead talking lots of football as we come down through hour number two of our program. Stick around. We'll be right back here on ESPN 730. Pressure on both sides. He's hit. He spins around and keeps his feet. Near left side. He launches a throw from the 40. They leap and it's knocked away. Zeros on the board. Navy wins. 21-17. 14 consecutive. Navy wins. That's the sounds of Army-Navy on Westwood One yesterday. Army with a desperate heave toward the end zone. Nearly a final shot to knock off Navy, Navy, but it's the midshipmen who end up holding off the Black Knights 21-17. As you heard, 14 straight wins for Navy over Army in that uh, uh, 
rivalry clash there. I guess the the last real big hint of rivalry weekend, and it just an awesome thing to see. 63,000, almost 64,000 in attendance yesterday in Philadelphia. And to see the full cores of both, I mean, it's just a, uh, one of those things that it kind of brings you back, uh, brings college football back center a little bit. It's not about Heisman's. It's not about bowls. It's not about college football playoffs. It's about two programs that have been battling for a long, long time and have a much greater purpose out there. Uh, going at it head to head in a college football game, just just everything right about college football is right about Army Navy. It gives you perspective because so much we get caught up in the fan bases, we get caught up in the hatred between rivals and all this stuff that really, in the grand scheme, doesn't matter. And whenever you have an opportunity like that, yesterday, I think it's it's sport at its uh, peak, at, at as high as it could possibly be. You have an incredible game between two teams that are going to go on to accomplish more in life than they do on the field. But a nice distraction going out there on the field yesterday and putting on a performance for the country. And I love every single year that that game is isolated by itself so we can truly appreciate it. And and that's an interesting topic we'll get into in a second. But first, the, the showmanship and the good sportsmanship of Ken Niamatololo, the head coach of Navy, uh, giving credit to Army for playing a, a solid ball game yesterday in that annual clash. I thought they played a heck of a football game. You know, give their kids credit. I mean, they fought to the end, and it just shows, you know, like we always say, when we play each other, just throw out the records, and I just, I thought those guys played really well. That's Ken Niamatololo, the head coach of Navy, uh, speaking again about Army and their uh, valiant effort yesterday to knock off Navy. Uh, a little bit short, but still, nonetheless, uh, Army did not look like a 2-10 and team yesterday, and that's somewhat of what rivalry football brings out. Interesting story about Navy, though, Um they they end up uh, finishing ten and two on the year and they'll they'll uh, move on from this point forward. But Navy very nearly threw the curveball of all curveballs to the college football playoff about a month ago. You'll remember that Navy was in contention for the American Athletic Conference title game and and looked like uh, uh, as as the the American kind of beat up on itself late. Navy eventually lost a game that got them out of that picture. But about a month ago. There was communication sent out to conference presidents, or, or rather uh, conference commissioners, that filtered down to athletic directors and, and presidents around the, the college football spectrum that basically said, if Navy makes the American championship game, you have to be prepared to not know bowl opponents and some matchups, and especially the college football playoff final matchups, until after Army-Navy. So imagine... If we didn't know who was in the college football playoff until this weekend, we didn't know the vast majority of bowl matchups until this weekend. And the reason for that was if Navy made the American championship game, they had to play that game and then Army Navy. So there were there were a potential or there was a potential for two times for Navy to play down the stretch rather than just the once. And it was going to be a, a huge issue for two reasons. One, historically, Navy always has off right before Army-Navy. Both service academies do. That's part of the tradition for it. Is that There's some buildup in the hype to the matchup. But they would have had to hold the college football playoff for fear that Navy could have become, and I say fear, that's, that's not the right word necessarily, but for logistical fear that Navy could have become the highest-rated Group of Five team by winning the American and beating Army, that would have put them in that playoff slot, uh, in, that, in that final slot there. So at the very least, you would have seen the college football playoff matchups beyond the national championship game impacted by what could have been with Navy. And again, this is all uh, you know, water under the bridge now. Navy lost a game. They end up 10-2, and, and, and this didn't happen. But 
the just think of the ramifications of what this would have meant for for the two weeks leading up if if you knew that navy was in that championship game and they had a chance to win that game and if they did that you were going to have to basically essentially put bowl season on hold for a week a full week before you knew everything that would mean that you know we just talked to scott satterfield a moment ago theoretically in in the way that the the communication came out theoretically you could have had a situation where Appalachian State goes into this week knowing they've got to play a game this week and they wouldn't have known who that opponent was. It would have been a, a thoroughly just media-melting frenzy out there that almost became because Navy had a good year in football this year. Some of the, the things you know, you hear the more you know star flicker in the background right now. We're going to take a timeout. We'll come back and get into the Heisman as we get caught up here this morning on the Sunday Lead, ESPN 730. The Sunday lead continues here this morning on ESPN 730. Harrison Battle, David Jackson with you here today as we continue to talk football. And hey, before we get into the Heisman, let's talk about some real champs. How about the four area teams from Charlotte or the the Charlotte metropolitan area, because we're going to include Shelby in this, that won state titles yesterday. Mallard Creek rolls in the four AA championship, third straight title. They win 49-6 over Page High School up in Greensboro in a game that was not that close so Mallard Creek has won three straight titles. Shelby has won three straight uh, straight state titles at the 2A level. 57-21 over Kinston yesterday. Monroe finishes off an unbeaten 16-0 season. So I guess they're the other Charlotte area team that is undefeated uh, along with Mallard Creek, I guess, too. Uh, two AA title winners, Monroe over Bunn, 38-19. And then Charlotte Catholic, winners of the 4A title over Greenville Rose, 27-20. So hats off to those four high school programs for winning their respective state titles and keeping that uh, uh, all football is bred here title to the city of Charlotte here as well. Maybe they're inspiring the Panthers. Who knows? Uh, Heisman Trophy was handed out yesterday. Not a huge shock as uh, you hear the announcement of the Heisman winner last night after what was the longest pre-show to an, a single award in modern sports history. Without further ado, the winner of this year's Heisman Trophy is Derek Henry. Yeah, that might have only been 13 seconds long. That was like a, a UFC fight there, but but we spared you the two hours of just uh, muttering and, and final analysis and all of that to understand that Derrick Henry won the Heisman, the Alabama running back, saying that winning this trophy, as coveted as it is, has always been a dream of his. First off, I just want to thank God Sam, for bringing me here and winning this prestigious award. You know, he's been so good to me in my life, and I've been honored and blessed and with this opportunity. And, you know, it's just a kid's been my lifelong goal and a dream of mine, and I'm just so thankful. Derrick Henry's words after the uh, winning of this trophy in, in his national interview there on ESPN, uh, very well stated. He handled himself great, and, and really you could get the, the sense of uh, it wasn't lip service. He, he really was humbled by winning the Heisman. Certainly his head coach uh, feeling uh, pretty solid about his guy winning the award as well, Nick Saban, saying that that's one of the, the top feelings ever as a coach when you can see your player win such a coveted award. You can't be happier for the young man who has done so much for so long, uh, worked so hard to reach his dreams and his goals. Um, you know, these guys are like family, you know, to us. Um, and, you know, I think it's the feeling that any parent would get 
uh, when their, their, their children do something that's really, really special, and uh, this is about as special as it gets. So this is as good as feeling as you ever get as a coach, and um, just really proud for Derek and his family. Nick Saban putting it into words, just that relationship between coaches and players. And, and you see the, the yelling and grumbling on the sidelines sometimes, but you forget the fact that these guys are around each other constantly. And, and so many times that relationship is more like father and son than coach and player. Certainly you can get a, a sense of uh, the level of pride that Nick Saban had watching Derrick Henry win that honor. A couple of stats to leave you uh, with as we wrap up our Heisman discussion here and kind of thinking about Derrick Henry versus Deshaun Watson. And, and why some people might have a sour taste that Deshaun Watson didn't win the Heisman. Certainly he was worthy of consideration. Henry ended up with three of the top ten rushing performances for college football this year. 271 yards against Auburn was one of the, the uh, top tallies in terms of yardage in the country. That came on the strength of 46 carries. 46 carries, 44 carries, and 38 carries. Three of the top ten rushing performances in terms of number of carries that were logged by Derrick Henry this year. He was second only to Leonard Fournette in terms of rushing average, 152.8 yards per game, fourth in the nation in scoring. Those are pretty solid numbers, all top five type level numbers. You look at Deshaun Watson, he was 16th in the country in passing, ninth in the country in total offense, and fifth in the country and points responsible for. I, I think it's ultimately the the passing number that that doesn't necessarily pass muster with the voters, and that's unfair to Watson in a sense, Harrison, because he was pulled from so many games because Clemson was just boat racing people. And and I think sometimes that's the 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 reason that sometimes you see those star players that, that you see a guy like Derrick Henry get 46 carries in a game that was over because whether they like to admit it or not, you're you're trying to get stats for your guy and make sure that your guy has the numbers to back up the awards that you want him to win. And Derrick Henry just had insane numbers down the stretch because uh, Alabama really doesn't have an offense or, or Jake Coker's done a nice job this year, but he's not the quarterback that you want to give the ball to and have him passing it consistently throughout the game. You'd prefer to rely on that running game and then uh, pass the ball out of that. So Derrick Henry had a whole lot more opportunities than Deshaun Watson. And going back to your earlier point, just speaking about Henry, I think so much in sports media and in all the different ways that we consume it, we get so lost in the fact that all these guys, all these professional athletes that we are watching are people. I mean, they're people first. They have lives. They do whatever they do throughout a season. So you see this speech last night by Derrick Henry, and it kind of reminds you of all the hoopla that's going around this ceremony. He doesn't deserve it. He does deserve it. This guy deserves it. This guy doesn't deserve it. Really doesn't matter in the end because I think that Derrick Henry was so satisfied coming away with that trophy and, and an incredible experience for both Christian McCaffrey as well as Deshaun Watson to be able to celebrate that moment as people first and just kind of take a step away from football because whenever they put on those uniforms, we place them in a whole different uh, light, a whole different uh, really uh, thought process than we do whenever we see them just sitting there on the stage with suits on. Yeah, I thought that uh, Derrick Henry showed joy in his face. He, he showed real excitement uh, at, at winning that honor, much more than just a business transaction or something to put on his highlight resume as he makes uh, tracks toward the NFL, and that was great to see uh, within such a uh, formative period of time in the college football calendar. We'll take another break here on the Sunday lead. When we come back, it's all NFL the rest of the way. We'll get you set for the Panthers and the Falcons from Bank of America Stadium as we get into notable matchups this weekend. That certainly is one of the headline grabbers as we discuss that topic next year on the Sunday Lead, ESPN 730. Another Panthers game day edition of the Sunday Lead here this morning on ESPN 730. 
David Jackson Harrison Battle back with you here from the ESPN 730 Worldwide Headquarters at the corner of Church and Moorhead. That's where pregame coverage continues at 11 o'clock this morning with the official ESPN 730 NFL pregame show. And then again, remember Rock Bottom Brewery after the game with Chris Allison and crew. They'll break down the matchup in full that was battle number one between the Falcons and Panthers. Hard to believe that you can get this late into the NFL calendar and still see the first divisional matchup between two teams. That's what we've got here as the These two squads will play each other twice over the next three weeks. As we look at some of the other compelling matchups around the NFL, still remember that we've got Robert Mays of the Monday Morning Quarterback, part of the Sports Illustrated NFL coverage empire. Peter King, of course, championing that effort. Robert Mays will join us here in about 15 minutes. We'll get his take in full on Falcons-Panthers and uh, get some further insights into what is Week 14 around the NFL. Uh, as we look at some of the compelling matchups in the 1 o'clock time slot, I think you look at Bills and Eagles as one of those matchups when you're starting to to look at playoffs on either side of the AFC or NFC spectrum. You've got the two compelling teams here. One, you've got the Bills, who have been uh, lights out from an offensive perspective with LaShawn McCoy putting back-to-back fabulous games together. You kind of wonder which Tyrod Taylor shows up on a week-to-week basis. But then you've got the Eagles that are very much in the mix in the playoff race in what is one of the most bizarre divisions. I don't want to call them subpar because there's competitiveness there, but just truly bizarre playoff races where it seems like teams can't can't eliminate themselves because if they lose games, they're still in it because everybody seems to lose and win in tandem in the NFC East. Yeah, exactly. How many times have teams throughout that division said, all right, well, we lost. Uh, we're not going to admit as a team that we're over, but all the fan base and all the media is kind of like, ah, I think that's probably going to be the end of it. And then the other team goes out and loses, and hey, you're right back in it. This is probably what we call the media game because of all the stuff that's being talked about with Rex Ryan and, and as well as Chip Kelly and the Eagles and sure to be a lot of storylines from this game that carry on throughout the week. But from a pure football standpoint, just saw a few minutes ago that the Eagles are going to have DeMarco Murray as their number four running back on the day. And with all the talk that there's been this week about Chip Kelly and LaShawn McCoy and all that stuff, that's a really surprising move, as you would think that as much as Chip is, uh, I guess, confident in uh, his coaching abilities, the fact that he's having the guy that he wanted uh, to run his system not going to play against his former product and or, or former player, excuse me, and LaShawn McCoy, an interesting development this morning. 49ers at Cleveland to take on the Browns today. This is a matchup that uh, sees a combined record of 6-18 and 18 between these two non-playoff factors. Only reason worth mentioning this game, Johnny Manziel expected to start for the Browns. But that doesn't make it worth mentioning. No, it's, it's not, you're, it's you're right. It shouldn't, but, but the circus will come to town, no doubt about that. Lions and Rams in a game that you thought might mean more at one point in time in uh, the NFC North play. Lions at 4-8, and eight, Rams with an idea identical record uh todd Gurley uh continues to get uh, carries here we'll see uh if he can continue uh, productivity here as he comes down the stretch of his season uh a game that uh, will have some uh eyeballs on it from the panthers and from the falcons perspective quite honestly you see the four and eight saints at tampa bay to take on the six and six bucks the Bucks playing a little bit more like a playoff wild card contender, and again in the NFC, that that will not be decided anytime soon. 
But this, I think, is I think you could say this about a number of teams. But this has got to be the last ditch effort for the Saints. They've got to get on some kind of roll to get back into that conversation. But you look at record wise, they're right about the same spot that Carolina was last year too. So you can't count them out just yet. Yeah, the NFC South just being absolutely flipped upside down this year. I think some people saw the Panthers winning this division, but there was so much parity at the beginning of the year that some people had the Panthers third and the the Buccaneers finishing in fourth. And it looks like those teams are going to come around and finish one too. So both of those teams in good position, setting themselves up well for the future, and we're wondering what's going to happen with the Falcons and the Saints for years to come. Best, or I'm sorry, worst team with the best defense goes on the field at one o'clock today. That's the three and nine Titans at the New York Jets, who are seven and five. Jets are playing for their uh, first three-game winning streak since 2011. The Titans with a top 10 defense. The Panthers know a little bit about that, but uh, they just have not been able to put points on the board this year, hence the three wins on their calendar. Uh, Cincinnati hosting the 7-5 and Steelers today. Bengals chime in at 10-2. and They're playing for playoff positioning by potential out there, although they're kind of on the outside of that conversation looking in. Other uh, 1 o'clock games include the 6-6 six and six Colts at the 4-8 and eight Jaguars. I think 4 wins for the Jags is that exceeding expectations or is that right on expectations I think we've talked a little bit about this season about how at least the Jaguars have hope for the future I mean you figure that they have these two big wide receivers that are going to play key roles Uh, you don't know if Blake Bortles is the guy but he's certainly a guy that can lead you to wins Uh, TJ Yeldon's having a nice year from Alabama so if they can cheer up the defense hold on a second we could be talking about the Jacksonville Jaguars being a good team in the NFL. I, I'm going to step away from that. Yeah, you, you need to stop drinking whatever you're drinking <laughs> over there. Three and nine Chargers at the seven and five Chiefs. Of course, Chiefs, one of the hottest teams in the NFL, uh, winning six in a row to get back above 500. They've got a seemingly easy challenge today, especially considering that Phillip Rivers has been playing with uh, or, or battling the flu uh, all week long. We'll see how that uh, transpires uh, throughout the course of this afternoon's contest. You've also got Redskins and Bears, a matchup of five and seven teams. We'll see if anybody likes that seven and five Seahawks at the four and eight Ravens Seattle starting to play better that of course gets all the national folks talking about just how great the Seahawks are even going as far as to say despite the head-to-head win that the Seahawks deserve more attention than say the team across the street you win we're going to give you or not we it's certainly not me or David or anybody else but if you win you're going to get the benefit of the doubt because you've been there and you've done that before we see it time and time again in sports and Hopefully uh, everything's going to be settled on the field instead of in the media. Four o'clock games include the five and seven Raiders at the ten and two Broncos. The four and eight Cowboys traveling to Green Bay to take on the eight and four Packers. Tony Romo saying this week that he'd be good to play in a wild card game. Thanks, Tony. Appreciate that. Four <laughs> and eight right now. Uh, that's an uphill battle. Sunday night game tonight at eight uh, thirty sees the ten and two Patriots at the six and six Texans. As I believe the Atlanta Falcons are just about to drive by here, judging from the sound of things. And. Um, the Monday night game, five and sevens battling there, the New York Giants and the Miami Dolphins, and that indeed is the Falcons that just drove past our uh, worldwide headquarters here at ESPN 730. So that does it for your matchups for the weekend. We'll take a timeout when we come back. Robert Mays will help us close down this edition of the Sunday lead from Monday morning quarterback. We'll get his thoughts on Panthers and Falcons and plenty more in the NFL spectrum as we roll on here this morning on ESPN 730. Sunday lead rolls on here this morning on ESPN 730. David Jackson Harrison battle with you today. We talk Panthers and Falcons. One o'clock kick from across the street at Bank of America Stadium. 
gentleman that was with the team throughout the course of this week. He writes for Monday Morning Quarterback, a Sports Illustrated staple. Robert Mays joining us on the phone. Robert, welcome into the Sunday Lead. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Robert, I'd like to know if, if you're high enough on Bojangles enough to uh, have purchased the franchise rights to open up your own Bojangles uh, in the greater Chicago area. Were you that sold on the product this week? I mean, that, I think that has to do with like fiduciary liquidity. If I was a, on a financial position to do that, I absolutely would. It's not a matter of wanting to. It's a matter of being able to. Understand that you win the Scrabble uh, uh, words of the day too for fiduciary liquidity. I like that. That's uh, that's a writer that you're talking to there, uh, Robert. What was your takeaway uh, uh, being around the 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 team this week? Uh, what are you buying into about the 12 and 0 Panthers, and what do you still want to see? I mean, they seem like an undefeated team. It feels like that when you're there. There's a looseness that comes with winning and. I'm not sure if that, it seems like with that locker room, that's something that is always kind of there. I mean, if it starts with Ron and, and Cam, it, it, they're the type of people that would lend to that feeling. But I also think that when you're on a roll like they are, it's a little easier back that way. In terms of what I want to see from them, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to pinpoint more than one thing at this point. I, I think that the way that Cam played last Sunday, it, that's the one thing. So can their passing game really be at a high level? It clearly was. You know, the Saints defense leaves a lot to be desired. I think that you still worry about who their receivers are. I think you still worry about are they one or two injuries away on offense from everything kind of slipping. You know, you're always worried about the one Jonathan Stewart ankle or one lineman goes down and a little bit it all starts crumbling at the foundation. But Right now, it's really, really hard to find a crack in what they're doing. Robert Mays from Sports Illustrated and the Monday Morning Quarterback joining us here this morning on the Sunday Lead. And, and Robert, as you've covered the NFL, you've certainly seen other undefeated teams out there or teams that are on big roles like the Panthers are this year. Do you find it that it is as much about the role players that make those teams uh, move along at the pace that they do versus the superstars. And and you're talking about bringing a locker room together. It seems like it's sometimes those guys that serve the niche actually end up being that collective straw that helps stir the, uh, stirs the overall drink. Do you agree? Absolutely. Um, I think that if you're going to go 13-0, and 0, you need guys to really contribute for you that you didn't expect to. I mean, the fact that Andrew Norwell is playing well for this team, the fact that you know Mike Remmers is on his third or fourth team and is a solid right tackle for them, Kaywon Short becoming not only a good player but on the cost of being a great player, getting Kurt Coleman in free agency and having him be someone that is playing the best football of his career. You have to do things like that, and it just seems like this team has been able to do that for years at a time. I mean, the fact that Charles Tillman was run out of Chicago. He's now a starting cornerback on one of the best defenses in football. It, it, there's a lot to be said about both Dave Gettleman and how he pinpoints pinpoint these guys and Ron Rivera and how easily these guys are able to step in and contribute right away. You know, back, uh, it seems like forever ago, but within the, the first few weeks of the season, uh, Charles Johnson goes down and Dave Gettleman taps Jared Allen to come in and, and be kind of that legacy defensive player. Someone that you could expect to get some numbers out of, probably not uh, numbers in abundance, certainly not the career numbers that, that Jared Allen's been able to put together. But moves like that, the way that Gettleman's been able to, to uh, kind of subtly 
add depth at times, or now what is depth in the in the case of Jared Allen? Uh, again, as you separate teams that are 12 and 0 versus uh, 10 and 2, do you feel like that will be one of the defining stories of a Panthers team that that could eventually run the table? Is the fact that the front office never really stopped tinkering with things, even though things were going so well, at least in the win loss column? It reminds me of Arizona, um, just the idea of where they can find players and how there's really no bad choice. There's no bad way to get a guy that you think can help you even a little bit. And that's what the good GMs do. And he's obviously, you know, Gentleman and his staff, it's no stone goes unturned. And I think in the NFL right now, just because you have to understand and probably concede that there's going to be some attrition. You're going to lose guys, and you need to tap every single resource possible because if you're not ready to deal with what happens after a guy goes down, then there's no way that you're going to have success long term. Robert Mays from Sports Illustrated joining us here this morning on the Sunday lead. And Robert, let's take it to the other end of this matchup today. The Atlanta Falcons started off so hot, and and now they they seemingly can't get out of the spiral. Uh, a lot of that discussion is centered around Matt Ryan. Do you see Matt Ryan as a quarterback in the decline or simply a quarterback that hasn't had the the tools around him to best showcase his game here over, say, the last four or five weeks or so? I think it's a, I don't think he's in decline, but I think that he needs to be playing better than he is. Uh, my old colleague from Grandland, Bill Barnwell, wrote something really good this week about how yeah, outside of Julio Jones, their receiving options are pretty much non-existent. And when you are in a place where you're really needing Leonard Hankerson and you're really missing him, you know you're in dire straits that position. <laughs> and that's where they are now. They really have no secondary option outside of Julio Jones. And in the league right now, if you have one receiver and that's all you have, the coaches on the other side of the ball, those defensive coordinators, they get paid. Like, they know what they're doing, and they can bracket a guy and they can take him away. And if you don't have anyone to make them pay for doing that, it's going to be really hard to succeed. And you, com- you combine that with the fact that he's turning the ball over way too close to both goal lines, and that's going to end up being a problem. Another quarterback in the division that seemingly has put his team into this wild-card playoff mix is Jameis Winston in Tampa Bay. Certainly the Panthers will see them in a few weeks here at Bank of America Stadium to close out the regular season. But as you look at at the potential NFC wild-card threats, just how much has Jameis helped sneak Tampa Bay into that conversation? And do they have any kind of deficiency that that puts them at risk of in staying in that conversation long-term? They have plenty of deficiencies. I mean, uh, you look at that team, and really, what's been a wasteland for them for the past five, six seasons is edge pass rushing. They don't have any of it. Their pass rushing is pretty mediocre, and they don't really have high-end secondary talent that can overcome that. So, uh, when it, when the season ends, I still think that some of the better passing teams in the league will be able to have their way with that team. But when you look at the offense, uh, it's kind of incredible what kind of step forward they've taken with Winston. He's playing about as well as any rookie quarterback ever has. If you look at the numbers that they stack up with a Matt Ryan or most most guys that didn't have that Robert Griffin year. Everybody that's been a the legitimate, stable starting rookie quarterback, he's as good as any of them. And when you combine that with guys like Mike Evans, the fact that Doug Martin's having a career year, the idea that they drafted a couple offensive linemen and back groups come together better than it probably should have. It's a real viable NFL offense, and considering where they were a season ago, that's kind of incredible. 
Robert Mays joining us here this morning on the Sunday lead. And, Robert, here in ACC country, especially with Deshaun Watson's name being thrown around to the Heisman, a lot of Clemson fans excited about uh, what they've seen out of their program in the last several years. And certainly putting Sammy Watkins in the NFL has been one of those bell cow moments for Tiger Faithful. Uh, we've seen him put together two incredible games back-to-back for Buffalo. Is he going to be the guy that carries the Bills into into further playoff consideration? Is he ready for that limelight within the NFL structure? this week, and I think that he gives that offense that last gear that they need. Their ability to be successful on offense this year is a combination of a lot of things. Tyrod Taylor has been the best version of who they could have hoped he would be. Their line has been much better than anyone could have hoped. Last year when they played Houston, J.J. Watt hit the uh, Asian manual nine times. This year when they played Houston, J.J. Watt didn't have a hit. That's all you need to know about how much better they've been. But now you add those things to that last final element that Watkins give you, gives you, which is the ability to burn down a defense, which he's done the past two weeks. So he's not the only reason, but I think right now he's finally putting them over the top to say, all right, our defense isn't what we thought it would be coming into the year. But maybe, just maybe, and it's hard to believe, maybe our offense is what can put us into this conversation. And it's players like that that eventually finally get you that spot. Formerly of Grantland, you can read Robert Mays now at Monday Morning Quarterback, part of the SI Football Arsenal. Robert, before we let you go, if we could priority mail you anything from Bojangles, do you have a favorite yet? I mean, have, have you been solidified in, in your Bojangles-ness, if that's a word, uh, to, to understand like the, your value meal of choice? I mean, I, I think I was at like an express one, because I don't, I'm not sure it was a full menu. I think it was kind of the little smaller ones you see like a train station. But the chicken biscuit that I had, it... it I mean, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of mentality with that. <laughs> well, check your mailbox. We'll see if we can send one to you. I can't guarantee the freshness, but we'll do our best, okay? You know what? Even if it's two days old, I think it's worth it. Awesome, awesome. Well, Robert, we appreciate your time. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay, Robert Mays joining us for Monday Morning Quarterback. Great insight on the NFL. And Harrison, as we get set to close down for a few weeks, we're going on a holiday hiatus here. You've got to get your vacation time in. We certainly understand that. Do you have a Charlotte fans holiday gift? What would that be? Uh, I have no idea. Super Bowl? Let's let's go ahead and say that. We'll be back by that point. Don't worry about that. But I think just continued winning for both of these franchises. Uh, and maybe you don't need any uh, a materialistic gift, but if these two franchises continue to win, we'll take that. Keep your appetite wet for the Sunday lead with the podcast available on iTunes. For Harrison Battle, I'm David Jackson. We'll talk to you next on January 10th.